Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Startup Nightmares. Startup Nightmares is a podcast that aims to inspire those who work in the startup world to do the best work they can the best way possible while dodging some bullets doing so. Let's just be a bit more human here. All of these people started needing stuff from me. Don't feel like you're on your own because you're, you're never on your own. But I'm paying this person a good wage. Why isn't that enough? And that doesn't make me special. What is making me special is my deeper story. People need a sense of purpose to feel motivated in their job. Wake up at five in the morning and like go to the gym for an hour. Like, what the fuck is that? You're sitting at your desk crying and you're like, what happened? I had no idea how to monetize anything. I was like, ah, everybody gets a title. You get a title. You get a title. Either pay me or I will sue you. All of our guests have been to the dark side of the innovation ecosystem and came back to tell their tale. You can use this. This is how you get there. It is not a secret anymore. My name is Tal Shmueli, and I will be your host. Kilbal Arieli, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. You have so much that you can share with us, and I can't wait to get going. But before we do that, let's kick off with something super simple, or I hope. Mm-hmm. Who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? So I'm uh, born and raised in Israel. I'm Israeli, a kind of citizen of the world. I'm a mom uh, to three boys, and I am a tech entrepreneur, an author, and more than anything, I'm super fascinated by people. The 1990s, just before the big, uh, the big uh, tech boom, the first one, You were a part of the IDF's unit 8200s. Can you tell us a little bit about your journey into that unit and a bit about the work you've done there, whatever you can share? Sure. So 8200 is the equivalent of the NSA in the U.S. Um, it's Israel's Central Communication Intelligence Unit. Okay, that's the headline. But as opposed to the U.S., in Israel, this unit is part of the military. Since it's part of the military, it means that 18-year-old soldiers are serving in this unit, are the professionals in the Israeli NSA. So I joined 8200, um, like everyone who joins this unit, after a recruiting process, which starts when we're 17. We're in high school. We know nothing about the unit, and you're right. Back then, it was uh, a very secretive unit. No one would mention the name. No one would say that they're part of that unit. You didn't really know what was going on there. And... 
above that, you're a teenager in high school, you're not really interested in these kinds of things. So there is a very specific screening process that existed back then and exists to date, also today, has evolved since, but is trying to find within teenagers the potential to become these elite professional in intelligence. I was an intelligence professional. Um, so the unit has mainly two types of roles, programmers and coders and intelligence professionals. I wasn't in the intelligence part. And I led, I, I joined first, and then after a few months went to officer school and led a team of 15 people by the age of 19, which is not something that special, right, uh, for, for us there in the unit, focusing on a very specific top priority intel threat that back then occupied policymakers and, and decision makers um, in Israel. So maybe I'm, maybe I'm completely off, but in the 1990s, uh, a female in that unit, was that a big deal or was that common? It was relatively common. And in general, 8200, since the beginning of its history, is, is actually showing a, a great number of relatively women. And the reason is actually out of necessity. Uh, because back then, actually, um, soldiers, well, candidates for military service with a higher physical profile. So women back then did not have the option to serve in so many open roles as today. Combat units. And- exactly. And the unit, 8200, needed a lot of talent. So it was actually a pool of talent that was just in front, in front of their eyes that did not require that physical adherence that back then was limited to men in other units. Got it. And so that's how it started. But actually, if you look even today in the Mossad, in the Shabbat, in 8200, in other Israeli intel organizations, which are world known to be top, right? You'll see a lot of women there. So you're saying, you know, physically, uh, uh, the roles were pretty limited. Women could not be pilots back then. They could not be combat soldiers. Fair enough. So what was it they were looking for at those 17-year-old boys and girls? It's a great question. How do you make sure that you find the right young people that are not just smart, but are also capable to deal with uncertainty or face challenges that they don't have the answers to, or continuously failing operations until they crack it and they hack something and they disturb, they dis- disturb something, comp- an existing reality. How do you find the right teenagers that can really work in a team and not by themselves? Because okay. what you're actually after is people who are exceptionally smart, exceptionally resilient, um, can function well under stress. pressure, under stress. And yet with a very limited uh, bank of uh, life experience. Right, right. So think of yourself at the age of 17 or any teenager. I I would like to avoid thinking of myself (laughs) at the age of 17. (laughs) So any teenager in the world, okay? And that's that's kind of common to teenagers. They're in high school, even if they have experience, even if they, you know, tried. And in the U.S., for example, teenagers are actually, you know, they're, they're completing a lot of projects as a requirement for then university and college uh, admission. But in Israel, when you're 16, 17, you're busy with boys, girls, partying, I don't know, fashion, music, having fun, some sports maybe, maybe studying, right? That's your, that's your world. You're not as your invested in, in your future because you know your future is kept 18, you join the army, 
and everything else will happen after you get right, released. Right, right. And, you, and, and you're a teenager. Um, what's the word? Exactly. So what's the word in, te- in Israel for teenagers? Mitbagrim. Mitbagrim is adolescence. Is, yeah, but how do you, uh, like I have at home, what's the, the word you would use commonly in like day-to-day language? Bnei noir? Tipesh esre. Okay, sorry. I'm not around no, these guys okay. anymore. <laughs> well, I have two at home. Okay. So Tipesh esre in Hebrew, the literal translation means the stupid age or the age of ah, the, the decade. stupid teens. Stupid teens or the decade of stupidity. And that's not special for Israelis. That's similar around the world. But the Israeli society actually... faces that and says we accept that they're going through that phase so while you're at that phase of stupidity which is very normal and healthy you're you're checking your barriers you're creating your identity your self-identity you don't have a cv you don't have relevant cred- credentials you don't know what it means to be a combat pilot or a navy seal or um 8200 professional you just don't really understand right So how do you find the right fit? And the unit has developed a set of evolving and constantly changing okay, processes to make sure that you, you possess the right, the potential for the right personality traits. And, and the best example maybe is how do you face, for example, not knowing something? So most people, most achievers, most smart people, they don't like not knowing. We don't like that. And from a very young age, we, we are as human beings taught that knowledge is power, right? In a sense, in the unit, not knowing is more power than knowing. And why? Because from the moment you understand you don't know and you feel comfortable with coping with that, now the quest Of knowing starts the real quest of knowing and understanding whereas if you start from a starting point with an assumption that you know everything and you have the answers for everything because you're super smart you make so many wrong assumptions along the way and in intelligence work it's critical so that's an example of how do you cope as a candidate with not knowing instead of checking what you know let's check how you react to something that you really don't know. And by the way, that's another very interesting thing because what happens in these courses, you're used to be the smartest kid in class, okay? But now you are with 20 other smartest kids in class next to you. So you're not the smartest anymore. In 80-200, a lot is not being told. And, and a lot is actually dependent on the self-capabilities, the self-motivation, the... resilience, the ideas, the creativity of each and one of these individuals and their invested and nurtured teamwork. So that there's a lot of focus also there. And I think that most of the interesting projects that the unit has uh, won prizes uh, for were actually initiated by super young, unexperienced, you could say, um, soldiers in the unit. It's a brilliant segue into our next topic, which is the connection between the Israeli Defense Forces and its intelligence arm and the startup nation or the tech hub that, that Israel is. What can you tell us about that symbiotic relationship between one very regimented, very strict system 
and the other one, which is hyper-capitalist, hyper-competitive, very open, very progressive. I don't think about the Israeli military as a very strict, hierarchical, um, regimented organization, actually. I actually think that um, from milit- comparing the Israeli military to other military organizations in the world, it's a very flexible, flat hierarchy. <laughs> Uh, creative organization. So your basic assumption is actually against what I believe. And the reason I think it's this way, and, and that, of course, influences my answer. The reason I think the Israeli military is actually operating this way is out of necessity for the Israeli military and out of a cultural element that exists. So, yes, we joined the Israeli military, which I joined 8200 when I was 18. I was selected when I was 17. But I brought a toolbox with me. And that toolbox is, is these muscles that I've evolved and developed as an Israeli growing up in Israel from a very, very young age. Now, these muscles, these capabilities are very relevant to the start, to then the startup nation we became and the tech ecosystem, the energetic, uh, dynamic one that you refer to. So I totally see. Uh, a thread line and a narrative from early childhood in Israel, from the culture of the society, through the military to the tech ecosystem. And maybe the best example, if we'll continue with, uh, with words, so Rosh Gadol, which translates into big head, is it a, in Hebrew, is it a positive or a negative thing? Usually it's a positive thing. It's a, po- it's a positive thing, right? It means someone that does more than they're expected to do, that takes responsibilities, That is not limited to their very specific right role and responsibility proactive not afraid of making decisions that's a Rosh Gadol, a big head in Hebrew well for American sp- native speakers that are listening to us big head means something completely different and is actually a negative kind expression. of like full of himself yes arrogant full of himself also in French my, cousin, my cousin in Texas would say big head no cattle Same expression, completely different meanings. Now, Rosh Gadol, this expression actually originated in the military. Surprisingly, in the military, you want people to take more responsibilities, to do more than them being told, to be proactive. Most military organizations don't act this way. You follow orders, you follow commands, but not in the Israeli military. And that's cultural. difference actually stands on top of our society, our, our values, some, some, again, some cultural elements that we have. And all of that together influences our transition then from the military into um, the high-tech world. So going back to your question, I actually see it as the involvement of the same element. I don't see it as a, a transition. I don't see it as a, a change in track. It's actually taking these super critical capabilities that you've fostered and nurtured before the military, then practiced and reinforced in the military, and then, boom, finding the perfect environment to the perfect stage and setting for them. And that is the tech environment. Social media connectivity had uh, boomed the uh, reputation of Israel as the startup nation. But tech was a pillar of the Israeli society for a while now. So when you left 
the army. Tech was already happening, right? Mm-hmm. It was the world of yes. semiconductors, of yes. chips, of manufacturing. Yes. What can you tell us about the ecosystem back then? Was it even called an ecosystem? And how did it evolve into what we know today? It's, so it was not called an ecosystem, actually. I think the, world, the word ecosystem and, and thinking of that collection of different stakeholders is, is something relatively new from the you know, 2005, maybe 2006, outside of Israel first, and then imported as a term to Israel. But all the different stakeholders were already existent when I joined the ecosystem. So you already had funding here. You had VCs. You had incubators, early stage supporters. You had a very limited, back then, a very limited level, not level, but um, layer of of, uh, angel investors. And the reason it was so limited is because there were not so many success stories yet to create that financial capability of individuals to invest back. But there were already few. So that's on the funding side. So funding existed already. So people were willing to take financial risks with companies who they believed have potential. Yes, of different stages, different types. And by the way, not just Israelis. Back then already, 85% of the funding, which is also the number today, was foreign investment. Amazing. You mentioned angel investors, Israel, early 2000, late 1990s. Where did they have money? Like the country is 50 years old, coming out of a series of, of military conflicts. So... Very few of them, the very few that existed were actually tech entrepreneurs that uh, were successful already back then because we did have some, some success stories and we're now trying, you know, to become investors and not just tech entrepreneurs. Got it. Give back to the... Well, not yet to give back or just to invest in what they know in, in, instead of investing in real estate, Got okay, it. which was a booming sector back then or... Diamonds, which was a, a very uh, yeah, flourishing yeah, yeah, huge. industry in Israel back then, what they know, with the, they're professionals in the tech world. Mm-hmm. So, so th- those were, the, and, and, and the list was very, very uh, limited. Maybe the best example of an Israeli famous angel investor from these days is Yossi Vardi. Immediately after ICQ okay, uh, uh, was sold, Yossi had decided that he's now investing. Yes, he also had, I'm sure, good intents and, you know, uh, an idea of doing good, but it's not philanthropy. And he became this um, super angel investor. At the beginning, he was uh, um, spreading small checks, but a lot of them, and creating a very diversified portfolio of his. So that's one example. We have funding, but we need all the different elements. We have academia and research and IP. Israel has had forever some very good academic institutions, the Technion, Weizmann Institute, um, Tel Aviv University, and all of these institutions from relatively early in their days had a tech transfer office. So the approach of thinking of what's created in the academy and then how do you transition it to the business world, commercialize it, existed in Israel back then. We have academia, IP, good universities, we have funding. We have multinationals. So in the early 90s, less than today, but there were already, Intel was already in Israel, as an example. There were already some multinationals that were present here in Israel, starting to understand the advantages of the local talent that exists here in Israel. 
So these multinationals, today we have over 350 R&D offices of the world's largest tech giants. They all have R&D offices in other locations in the world as well. They're not exclusive to Israel. But if you'll ask them, the, the joint answer would be what they find in Israel, they can't find elsewhere. So here what they find is this creative mindset, this very disruptive mindset that exists within the tech world. And so they started actually start opening offices in Israel. Let's name a few of those companies. Well, that Apple was maybe the, the most interesting example because Apple's first R&D office outside of Cupertino was in Israel. Seriously? Yes. A company known for its secrecy, for its centralized decision-making, opened an R&D office. In Israel. Under the radar, by the way, for the first two years. Very, so still today, you won't see a lot of PR around them. Okay, Google You won't has, even know they're here unless you see a job offering or yeah, know well, someone. Today, they already have more than one R&D office. They're, they're, they're already employing thousands of people. So it's, it's already a known fact, but they're, they're not doing a lot of PR around it. Uh, because of their secretive general a lot of philosophy. Into it, yeah. Exactly. But Google, Facebook, Dropbox, Intel, Microsoft, I mean, you name it, the largest banks in the world, German companies, um, Daimler or Bosch, they all have R&D offices in Israel. R&D, which is either focused on a specific niche area, sometimes cyber, but not because of the capabilities, but not limited to that or a general R&D office. Now, that element, that component within the collection, right? We talked about the stakeholders, was critical for the, what we see today as the, the, the success of the Israeli tech ecosystem. Because that means that an 80 to 100 graduate, after he or she goes to university, back in the 90s, okay, end of 90s, graduates from computer science, They now can work for Google or for Microsoft back then here in Israel. They don't have to go. They don't have to relocate. They don't have to leave their homes and their families. They can do it from here. And the journey we actually see is that the first six years on average of the professional career of these young people is working for one of these big multinationals. So what we see happening is that when they come out of the military Today, less in the past, more go to university. Okay. Today, it's not a, it's not a requirement anymore. We know that from it's Google and Facebook. It's not a mass stop. And, and the military acknowledged that. And as part of the military efforts to retain these people for a longer time in the, in the military, they actually offer them to do their first degree and their, their, their MA later in the military while they're serving in the military. Crazy. So okay. they increase the ROI on their time and. Exactly. They go out from the military. They join one of these big multinationals. Today, some of the Israeli companies, which are already very large, okay, for an average of six, seven years, like we said. And then they have more confidence. They have more knowledge. They have more networks. They have a better understanding of the business arena. That's when they start their um, startups. So the average age of Israeli tech entrepreneurs is not the you know, 25-year-old, um, 80 to 100 coder we have in mind. It's not the average typical tech entrepreneur. They're more in their late 30s, around 37, 36 on average. So the time they reach, uh, let's call it professional maturity, if you will. Yes, exactly, exactly. And some economical you know, stability. 
in a sense, now they're, they're capable of taking more risks. So back then, the ecosystem had the uh, kind of like the seeds for everything we see today. Some money, some tech, the beginning of companies setting up their R&D centers here. Fast forward 20 years, here we are. And the culture. And, 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 and the, the entrepreneurial mindset and the entrepreneurial and the creative mindset and the failure tolerance mindset. It's a critical element, maybe the most critical element, because you can, as, a, as an economy, as a country, you can try and develop some of these components through incentives, through different programs, right? But the cultural part of it is where Israel has a great advantage. Now, Does it mean that other countries in the world cannot succeed? We see definitely great hubs of entrepreneurship all around the world, right? You're, you're, vis- you're touring the world um, with this podcast, seeing successes of, of other hubs. So it is happening in other places. But an inherent advantage of the Israeli society is, is that, that cultural element. When we're thinking about Israel, a few things that are maybe worth mentioning is that all in all, It's nine million people here, right. of which less than half are part of the workforce, right. of which maybe 10 percent, 15 percent are directly working in tech, engineers and technical professions. Give or take, ballpark mm-hmm. figures. Mm-hmm. And so the proximity, the access is a multiplier because it's not a huge market. Right. There's not, like, there is an abundance of talent over a tiny piece of land. Right. And that proximity... creates those types of connections it helps it accelerates ideas it helps closing the loop a little faster but all in all we're mentioning all these big companies you know it's the same companies that are operating in Germany or in France or in the US but here condensed into a correct into something that's a so suburb let me ask you a question what, what is missing in our puzzle what's the one element that we actually didn't have back in the 90s and we still don't have today that is critical for a flourishing hub of innovation and And entrepreneurship if you ask me I would say two things which is professional mid management and processes which are maybe kind of the same things okay but something more structural something not dependent structural. just an element that is missing it's the market because you just mentioned we're a tiny market of nine million people Hebrew speaking isolated economically from other markets around it because of geopolitical reasons so you Great, we have all these components, but what we're missing is the clients. And I think that's where actually Israeli entrepreneurs have, have really proven their creativity and their chutzpah. Okay, we'll get to talk about that. Their, their, their audacity is not thinking of that as an obstacle. Okay, turning the bug into a feature in a sense, in the way that instead of limiting themselves to the local domestic market, which, by the way, many hubs of entrepreneurship do, they initially focus internally on a, on a close a domestic market, and only then, if it's successful, they will transition to the larger global markets. But for Israelis, they understood that if they limit themselves to the domestic market, their learning curve is very limited because we, we also operate in Hebrew, And it's just a tiny, 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 tiny market. So from day one, Israeli tech entrepreneurs are actually thinking globally. And that is another, and, and in my eyes, it's completely connected to the topics of chutzpah and again, daring and, and, and you know, thinking long-term 
without calling it long-term. So the last company I served as general counsel at was a huge promise that did not fulfill the promise. It, it failed. But what I saw there was that so many of, of other colleagues of mine from that company, not only they were not discouraged or just, you know, in, in depression, but they actually immediately moved into the next step. And many of them created their own businesses, their own startups. It fascinated me as a phenomenon. How can you be part of such a huge failure? And instead of, you know, hiding yourself and being ashamed, actually take ownership over that failure and say, but now I'm better trained. And so I started looking at what was happening at the world. We're, we're talking 2010 and I found YC, Y Combinator. There was one Israeli tech entrepreneur that came back from YC. He's still a very successful one today. He's the, the founder and the CEO of a company called Joytunes. And the more he told me about the process and what he went through at YC, I thought to myself, how come we don't have such a comparative vehicle in Israel? Because we have all these components and we are collaborators by, by nature. How come we don't have these early stage support yeah, systems? Wh why can't we funnel the resources exactly, as in a structural way? Exactly. And that's when I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. But here's a big difference. Uh, YC has on an average year back then even, okay, they were back then already accepting, I don't know, hundreds, almost thousands of startups to their cohort out of tens of thousands of applicants. And the business model was taking a, a small portion of equity, but you have diversification and you have, it, it's, it's a numbers game. You have a very large portfolio in terms of size, right? So you have 500 companies a year, one Dropbox, and that Dropbox kind of funds everything else. And you can compete in every part of the industry. Right. You, diversification. Metric, whatever you want, exactly. you're there. Now, translating that to Israel is, is somehow problematic because of the scale. Because on an average year in Israel, how many startups are being initiated every year in Israel? Do you know? Do you have an estimation? I guess, Roughly. I guess 3,000. 1,000. Yeah. So it's, we, we make a lot of noise, but <laughs> no, 1,000. It doesn't make sense from a business perspective. So, and I understood that. And that's when I said, okay, so I need, I definitely need to create, okay, such a, a vehicle and bring that value, but without the business model. So let's find the right setting for that. And 8200 Alumni Association was the best for me. It was the best place for that because it's, you know, it's going back to my roots. And that's how the 8200 Entrepreneurship and Innovation Support Program started. We started building the strategy and, you know, doing a little bit of research in September 2010, launching it, I think, end of October after the high holidays. And in January, the first, cohort, the first cohort was already up and running. Crazy. I wouldn't be surprised if the people involved in that program will win the Life Achievement Award at some point. It's pivotal to the economy, to the country. Right. It was because 10 years later or 11 years later now, there are over 150 accelerators in Israel. And it was the first. It was really the first accelerator. And it just shows that it, it, it touched upon such a missing element in that ecosystem 
that just rearranged things. One topic I'd like us to just briefly skim over. You mentioned you worked as a general counsel for a company that ended up failing and how quickly people have transitioned from failure. Today, we see the trend of humble brag, of like failing is some sort of a badge of honor. It's embedded or ingrained into the Israeli society from way back when. How do you explain that mentality? And also, what can you tell us about the circumstances of that specific failure? So let's start with the circumstances of that specific failure. It was probably a combination of market changes that the company, so that's one thing that changed. So the environment around us changed, but we as a company were not agile enough, quick enough, rapid enough, open enough to adapt to that change. Could that also be a part of the geographical isolation? Could be a lot of things. I, I don't know. I'm Could be a lot of things. For a <laughs> Could be a lot of things, but eventually it was it was that it was the fact that we were not we were not agile enough, not by definition or by processes. Really stopping for a second and saying, okay, we have a great idea, we have a great solution. There's market interest for this solution, yes. But something has happened. And what happened for us was actually, so it was a telecommunication company with um, the, the world's smallest um, smartphone. And with no time, with, within 10 months of, of activity, we came out to the market with a working product, which is crazy in consumer. Uh, uh, Back product. then, phones required, like they had two devices and the big ones and the antennas yeah, and then the shell ones. There was an entire story, so an entire system to it. This was supposed to be the epitome of the evolution of small handheld devices. Right. But what happened was that in the same summer, after a year of activity, the iPhone came out to the market. Pow! Kapow! And completely changed the way the world consumes. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Telecommunication through a device. And did the exact opposite that what we were doing. So instead of, we were actually decomposing all the usability into small pieces, very smart, very fine-tuned, okay? But, but decomposed, and the iPhone came and brought everything together into a big device, 
And now, does it mean that Modu did not have a relevant target audience for th for our back then value proposition? Yes, there was. And maybe the, the, the best proof for that was that Google actually eventually acquired the IP. And today you do see in many places in the world, so the, the consumption of or, or the purchase of small smart devices has grown since back then in 2007. But we wanted it all. And, and we were not agile enough to understand that the change that Apple brought into the market was a radical change. How quickly do you go from being so promising, well-funded company <laughs> into turning off the lights? And three years. Three years. $120 million, 300 employees, five subsidiaries around the world. Shut down. Gone in three years. Gone in three years and plus. The, we sometimes say it's the most expensive business school in, uh, <laughs> in Israel. <laughs> we had, a, we had a, one of the guests in the previous season, Alexandra. She was a part of Cambridge Analytica. When she joined, it wasn't called even Cambridge Analytica. And she goes, listen, I stayed through it because I knew this would be the best business school I'll ever get. So, so fair enough. Yeah, but I think people who stay, and I can speak for myself. I was at Modu from day one. When it, before it was called Modu, it had a different name. It was called Infone. I, mean, I was there from day one. Until the end of it. I didn't stay because I thought it was a, big a good business school. I stayed because I really believed in, in the vision. I was blind as so many others in the company. And I was emotionally invested in what we were doing because I truly believed that if there is one company that could actually give a fight to Apple, it would be us. It was not a, an opportunistic thing. <laughs> It was, it was your life. It was my life. Oh yes. It was three years that I, I don't think I saw my kids for three years. Yeah. And I don't have any remorse at all. It was, it was eventually a great school. It's a beautiful segue into the coping mechanism with failure, because if you internalize failure too much, then I think it holds you back. You identified with it. You start identifying your identity with that failure. I am a failure. It's not a company that had failed. So you need to internalize it just enough so you can learn from it. What have we, what have we done wrong? Mm -hmm. Didn't we read the map? We've, uh, we've done, I don't know, whatever it is. We haven't researched enough. We haven't, whatever. And then there is, you know, if you only externalize the failure, there was nothing we could do. Like maybe it allows right. you to move faster in your career, but it doesn't really serve the learning process. So how do you guys explain how getting it right? Like, so I, I don't think there's a, you know, an algorithm to it. I don't think there's a clear formula on what are the weights of every element in that equation. It really depends on who you are as, as an individual. Okay. I do think though, that the environment plays a very important role in that process. To your question, I think that the Israeli society is not one that encourages failures, but is one that is not afraid from failures because we, I think because of our very practical tachlis, okay, state of mind, we're focused on success and success as it evolves and changes rather than as excellence or as, you know, clear set plan from advance as a society we the doing the moving the advancing is more important to us it's it's slightly militaristic and of course it's debatable but i would say that the if you take the cliche of of you only fail when you stop trying 
then as a country, we are unable to stop time. What, like, right. We don't We're forced have, to continue. We don't have the privilege of just, of just uh, looking back at our glorious legacy and celebrating it. It's not classical Europe. You know, it's not mm-hmm. that our past is still ahead of us. Uh, if we don't innovate quite literally... In everything. Correct. We're gone. Let's talk a little bit about chutzpah, audacity, uh, your book. Mm-hmm. The thesis in the book, if I got it right, says that the characteristics you develop as a, as a child in Israel serve you later in your journey into entrepreneurship. Yes, you got it right. But, but let's, let's take a step backwards. So chutzpah here is the book. was published by uh, HarperCollins. So the book sits on you know, the business shelf. You can ask yourself, assuming what you said is right, the book tells the journey of Israeli childhood and how it influences later on the entrepreneurial mindset and the creative mindset that exists here in the country. But why would Harper Business be interested in Israeli childhood? They're not really interested in that, right? So the book is not really about Israeli childhood. The book is about those skills for the future. The book is about what economies around the world, what business leaders around the world, what organizations around the world are actually looking in terms of personality, qualities, traits, capabilities in the talent that they have around them. And as individuals, of course, that set of elements is, is uh, a similar set all around the world. It's not unique to Israel. What's unique to Israel is the fact that if you look at that list of skills, many of them are present here on an everyday basis in the street, everywhere, and definitely are manifested throughout our childhood. And my thesis is that you don't need to be born in Israel in order to possess okay, these skills. It's exactly like muscles in your body. If you decide that you want to become a good swimmer and you train in the swimming pool every day for three hours, you'll become a better swimmer than you were before, right? Yeah. Even if you were born in a country that has no ocean around it, right? So, yes, you have this starting point of your nature and your environment, but you can definitely nurture these things. And... Through Israeli childhood and through anecdotes and examples from the Israeli childhood, what, I, what I'm doing is actually unpacking those skills for the future and showing how you can actually, as a business leader, okay, as a, a, a grown-up, as the um, chairman of a bank or a tech entrepreneur or an investor, how you can actually foster uh, and nurture these skills within yourself. Can I, can I put you on the spot and ask sure. you to read an example that you find is... So throughout the world, the, the book, I also picked some, I think, 12, the exact number, Israeli words, Hebrew words, that each one of them illustrates a mindset that I think is critical for entrepreneurship. So the one I, I literally just opened the book at Balagan. It's not even what, it, what is <laughs> marked here from a different interview. I love Balagan. Let's go with Balagan. So Balagan, the concept of Balagan. So for us Israelis, it's very clear what Balagan is. Chaos. Chaos. A mess, right? My argument is that, and we see that today in the world, okay? I wrote the book before COVID-19, 
but look at the chaos that's happening in the world. No one knows anything about nothing. No one knows anything about nothing. There's a lot of uncertainty, which is a different topic by itself, but chaos is somehow related to it. And I argue that from chaos, you can actually create a lot of order. It's like that moment when you take everything out of your closet just to put it back in. In a different order. Yes. Right. And now if we'll take everything out of your closet and put it, you know, on a pile on a bed. So what's the name? I think it's Marie Kondo, the, the, right, the Japanese yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, guru of, uh, she will organize it in one way. And another guru of, I don't know, organizing uh, uh, closets would organize it in My a different system. My son will do system. it like on a color scale. Marie Kondo will do it like, how much do you love those exactly. clothes? Exactly. Each one would have a different approach into creating a new order from that chaotic environment. And I think that's the beauty of chaos. Now, in Israel, we see Balagan all over, right? Everywhere. Wait, I want to try and find a, a paragraph because that's what you asked me. Um, I'll take something which is really personal, which uh, is, is about my childhood. When I was four years old, my family moved abroad for three years. I was admitted to preschool in Geneva, where we lived. I have a very strong memory from my first day in the, of the kind teacher who took me by the hand and introduced me to the other kids. I did not speak the language, but their smiles were enough to make me feel welcome. She showed me where to put my bag and lunchbox. She then took me to the playground, pointing out to the familiar structures of the swing, the carousel, and the slide. When we approached the slide, my teacher called another girl to demonstrate for me how the process works, reminding you this is in Switzerland, Geneva. The girl climbed, climbed up the ladder, and only when she reached the top of the slide did my teacher give me a sign that it was my turn to climb. She smiled at me. By the time I reached the top of the ladder, my friend had reached the bottom of the slide. My teacher made it clear. That was my cue to slide down myself. She smiled again. And so on. The process is safe. It's organized. It's fun. But while the slide was familiar to me from Israel, the process was completely different. So now imagine four o'clock in the afternoon, a typical Israeli playground anywhere in the country, <laughs> and the slide, and the kids. I, I already have a mental image of the, of the chaos of the Balagan. A kid on top of another climbing the ladder. One mom is coming. She's shouting. And one dad is grabbing his boy out of the... Exactly. One slides on top of the other guy. <laughs> exactly. There's chaos. An outsider would look at that setting and would say, Oh my God, this is crazy. This is insane. Who gave them the license to even be parents? <laughs> Who gave them the license to be parents? If the parents are there. In many cases, the parents are not the even parents there. If the parents are there. Good okay. point. What are these crazy kids doing, right? And it's completely chaotic. Now, it's not just about what's obvious from this example, I think, is that by allowing kids or by not telling kids or showing them exactly how, what's the process, they create their own processes. So one would climb up the slide and one would just jump. And that's fine. Do Israeli kids experience more injuries in, in playgrounds and other places in the world? No. Statistically, no. They're smart. They learn very quickly, you know, to, to take care of themselves and to be safe, but they do it in a completely different way. And they're not being told, by the way. They're not being taken by the hand. How, have you ever seen an Israeli kindergarten teacher or parent guiding their kids through that process? You won't see that. Take the toy. See you later. Yeah, see you later. Go ahead. Enjoy. The second thing that's happening 
through this very specific example, through this chaotic situation, is that it requires those kids to confront with each other. Because what's happening is that you're climbing up the slide and another kid is going down the slide and you're bumping into each other. And there's confrontation. Is it bad? No. Because they're capable of solving that confrontation and they're actually starting to train these muscles of what we see later on, 18 years later or 14 years later in the military, of teamwork and leadership. So you're working at a company whose product is... Leadership assessment, those two words were so interesting to me. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit about the work you do now? Sure. So Synthesis is a company uh, I founded back in 2017. We were four co-founders, two Israelis and two Americans. And what we do is, act, we pro- so the end result is that we provide leadership assessment to C-level executives in different use cases whether it's hiring processes and search processes. So how do you identify from specific candidates the most relevant ones? Or in onboarding cases where you have, and onboarding is one of our most relevant use cases nowadays with, with the COVID-19 because of remote onboarding. You have an executive who's onboarding to an existing team. How do you optimize that onboarding in due diligence cases where investors, mostly private equity firms um, and VCs are interested in assessing the executive teams that they are about to invest in and in uh, M&As. And what we do is we focus on a psychological assessment of the executives. So really understanding the individual. Our work is actually comprised of two elements. The first and most important one is, is you as a human being. Okay, a psychological assessment where we focus on three main, I would say, families of indicators. The first is self-awareness. And that, that relates to your report with yourself. Development can only start with, uh, when there's relatively high self-awareness, when you, you really understand yourself. So that's the first circle. And then the second circle is, is you and your relationships with others. And that's mostly throughout your communication style and your, emotional intelligence. And the third circle of elements that we look at is how you relate to the world. And that actually is focused on your capability to deal with ambiguity. Okay. What is your reaction? What is your responsiveness to what's happening out there? Again, has become extremely relevant nowadays. So we focus on these three families of indicators from a psychological uh, perspective. So it's not just an assessment tool, it's also a walking tool because I've hired this executive and I can see some of her traits and some of her behaviors and now I know how to walk around them, how to communicate them, how to exactly. manage expectations around them. Exactly. Especially if you've also gone through the assessment, which most of our clients do. Got it. And then you can actually better understand what is the persona of your relationship. So many things I want to I ask you about. So... I love those types of questionnaires. I love self-exploration. I've wrote a book about self-exploration in a way. Um, self-exploration through others. It's a long story. Hmm. And I've done an assessment called the Hogan assessment. Mm-hmm. Basically, the deliverable was three types of, uh, of uh, response sheets that gave me some sort of a score and an indicator. How do I uh, come across on the superficial level? Uh, what are my stress behaviors? And I can't remember the other ones. Oh, my, my, my preferences, like my motivators. 
I loved it. Is this something close to what you guys are doing? Not really, because the, the Hogan methodology is completely different. So the input that you provided was completely different. It was about how much I identify with a certain statement. Yeah, and you had a scale. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Right? Don't get me wrong. There are great tools of assessments out there. Hogan is one of them. They're great. Ours is completely different. So what Hogan and other um, similar tools do, they create kind of a, a bank, a repository of behaviors that they've studied. And based of, you know, your answers on the scale that you gave, they're putting you into a specific type. They benchmark you. They benchmark you and they say you're type this, you're type that, okay? And they give you a score. It's validated, okay, uh, um, scientifically. I felt it was very insightful. The only caveat I would say is that they wouldn't let me read the scores alone. They're like, listen, you know, it could be a bit of a triggery mm -hmm. issue here. One of our psychologists is going to walk with, with you. Because that's, that's the business model is of having someone to facilitate, okay, the results to you. Got it. Okay. We were completely different. So we are a strong believer in self-exploration, uh, by the way, in the sense that you get your report back, which again is a psychological assessment, personalized. It's not, yes, of course it has an element of you compared to others, but that's not the core of it. The core of it is a psychologist, a trained psychologist who has read your answers, remember, which are not a scaled answer or Again, the questions are very broad, as broad as, tell me your story. Like that. Like that. And now and you write as much as you want. It takes you as much time as you want. Some people write one paragraph. Some people write three pages. We don't limit you is in there, any way. Is there a right or wrong answer? If I write no, you exactly. one paragraph. No, there's no right or wrong answers. No, there's no right or wrong answers. But through the way you tell your story, we are capable... Of course, if you've written more than a sentence or a word, right? But most people do. Most people are actually waiting for someone to ask them such a broad question about themselves. Tell me your story. Can you Who tell you are? What do you do? And why do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell if someone is, is writing a pit or writing a story? Yes, of course you can. But what's interesting to me is not... Again, the, date, the, the facts that he or she is writing. So if he's writing a pitch, our psychologist would try to understand why did he choose to write a pitch? Okay? There's, there's a reason there. And in the pitch that he wrote, why did he choose to mention these elements and not other elements? It's except for not writing, which of course we cannot assess someone who doesn't write, and we have a, a minimum uh, amount of words, by the way, that we don't tell you in advance. But if you send us back your answers with two words in each answer, we will, we will write you back and say... It's also an indication. Exactly. And we will tell you, listen, our experience shows that... You're a sociopath. No. <laughs> <laughs> that people do share more with us. You chose not to share and you probably have your own reasons. We're giving you a second chance now. If you do want to share with us, go ahead and do so. And it's maybe a handful of cases that we've had with the thousands of um, executives that we had that chose to do so. But we're mostly interested in how you tell your story and who are the, what are the elements that are existent in your story. So kind of reverse engineering the playwright a person writes about themselves. Mm. In a way. Yeah. In a way, okay. <laughs> well, that's narrative so psychology. It's all about how you tell stories. 
I'm, I'm fascinated by it. And maybe I'll take it into a more practical realm for those who listen. Self-awareness, there's a reason you've put it as at the core of your assessment. How can people increase their self-awareness on their own terms? Great, great, great question. I think it takes um, intent. So I think the first step is to want to do so. Even if you don't completely understand what's there, like what's in it for me, like what's the value? Because it's frightening. It's, you know, it's for many people, it's frightening. But then you live your entire life with yourself, right? <laughs> so At I think times intent, it feels like, like reinforcing an illusion or an impression you have on yourself is so much easier than being confronted right. with... And it's part of your defense mechanism sometimes, and it's fine. We all have defense mechanisms. They're different, but we all have different defense mechanisms that we use that we use to protect ourselves and, and to be capable of you know, living this life and advancing in this life, and that's fine. But I think the first step is to want to go on a quest with yourself. Now, how long would that be? How deep will I dive? I don't know, but at least to want to explore something. When you say intent, some people would say, you know, I'll go on a, on a long trip to a third world country and I learn about myself. That's one type of, of intent. The other would say, oh, I'm going to start a company. I can't wait for the journey. I'm going, to, you know, I'm going to have to evolve. But you're saying it's a parallel process into what you're already doing. In everything you're doing. Exactly. So in everything you're doing. I could be an entrepreneur, but that doesn't uh, rid me of the need to go no. on a self-reflection no. journey. Not all, all entrepreneurs have high self-awareness. Tell me about it. <laughs> Some it. do, by the way. <laughs> Fascinating. One question to finish up with. So from 8200 to starting the accelerator, writing a book, being involved in, in several companies in different stages, it seems like you could have just went on a career as a keynote speaker, delivered the, the message of chutzpah, workshops, working with executives, but you chose to go back to the to the to the, to the cockpit, to the pilot seat, to the driver's seat as a founder. How did your experience as a founder change from 15 years ago mm -hmm. to now? Wow, it changed dramatically. I started Synthesis understanding that I don't think of it as a startup, but I think of it as a business. So that's a huge, by the way, change. And if it's a business and not a startup, It means that I'm not pursuing, you know, the, the regular steps of first, we're focusing on an MVP and, and funding and da 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 Investors, board meetings, no. I want, a, I want a client from day one. My validation is a paying client. It's a completely different mindset, okay? Our first client actually turned to be our strategic investor and, our, and our, literally our, you know, co-founder because it was like from day one, we actually... started the company because of a need that a specific client-to-be asked us. So he asked for that service and we said, Ooh, now this is the opportunity to make that a company. And so everything I do at Synthesis is different from what I did in the past. Again, so many things, the priorities, the, we are a team that is actually divided between U the U.S. and Israel. So the expertise, the brain is here, but the operation And the sales, of course, is in the U.S. and the customer service is in the U.S. 
it brings challenges to manage such a complicated, you know, small team divided into two continents. Uh, but it also brings a lot of advantages, especially going back to what we talked about, the market reach. Um, the willingness to pay, the competitive landscape. Uh, um, and the, the proximity to the market, yeah, just yeah. the proximity to the clients. In Bar, we're going on for, I'd say, almost an hour and a half. And my notes here, there are still things I'd like to cover, but it's not fair to you and it's not fair for Sorry. the listeners to try and squeeze everything into, into one session. Um, where should people go to learn more about your work? Perfect. Yoursynthesis.com is a synthesis website and uh, you can reach out to us from there. And the uh, Chutzpah Center, so C-H-U-T-Z-P-A-H, center.com is where all my approach, ideas, philosophy about the book is, including some super cool stuff around the, the words that we talked about and the mindsets and the principles. And obviously, of course, for speaking uh, engagements, that's where you should go. The, your online presence was incredibly helpful for us to get ready for the interview and also to get in front of you because you published something for Israel's uh, latest Independence Day or the one before. Yes, the Founders Studio. The Founders Studio, so prominent founders from Israel, uh, which, which through that we got to Chutzpah and then got to cool. you. So it's I'm very a, happy. It's a treasure trove of, uh, of knowledge. You've done so much. And the only thing I can wish you is to keep doing. Mm-hmm. And um, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you very much. Same here. And Yala Balagan. Yala Balagan. <laughs> Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.